Okay, we're continuing on this week in really the final main section of uh, Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. Uh, We will uh, have some closing remarks we'll deal with later on, but uh, this is the part of the letter which really uh, brings it very down to earth, down to where we're living. Now let me remind you that the overarching theme of the letter, that which holds it all together, is that the Christian life finds its sole source in Jesus Christ who is preeminent over all things. Everything you and I need for the Christian life is in Christ. Christ was not just our ticket into heaven. You know, it's not that, you know, Christ bought us entrance into heaven, but now we're to do our best to live our lives for God. That's not what the Christian life is about. Christ has provided everything. We've seen that, you know, we've been baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ. We've been immersed in him. Uh, you know, baptism is one of those words that early on was never translated and never has been since for the most part. It's transliterated. Uh, it's from the Greek word baptizo. But historically, it always had to do with immersing something uh, in the, uh, the way it was used in the Greek culture. It started with immersing a garment in dye. And then it went on to to, um, have a a broader meaning. But it always had to do with immersing. And the Holy Spirit immersed us in Christ. His death became our death. His resurrection became our resurrection. His life has become our life. We have a whole new life for us in Christ. But we still have that old Adamic nature within which we've seen is, has been crucified. It's not dead and gone. It's been put in a place of judgment. It's been nailed to the cross, as it were, and we're to see it as such and uh, learn to live on the basis of the new life we have in Christ. And, uh, you know, the other week I read this statement, and I'll read it again, because I think it's important in the section of the letter we're in. It says, in that there are two distinct natures, you know, the old man and the new, seeking expression by means of our as yet unredeemed body, we must keep them separated in our thinking. In itself, the old nature is ever strong to do evil. Only by the Spirit is the new nature strong to bring forth righteousness. This old man can sin very well on its own. The new man is a life that we've seen has a symbiotic relationship with Christ. It cannot function separated, uh, separately from him. And it is the Holy Spirit that, you know, teaches us and uh, takes those things which are Christ and make them known to us and shows us how to appropriate them into our lives so that we learn to live on the basis of this new creation life. Now, all of the commands in the New Testament, I believe, are geared towards two things. 
One is revealing the inability of the old man. When we try to keep them through that old Adamic nature, we are incapable of doing so. And the other thing is to bring us to that place of increasingly living our life in union with Christ. Because that's where it's possible. Now, as I pointed out the other week, we gain this new life, you know, in an infant form. It's not omniscient. It doesn't know all things. It has to grow. And Scripture talks about growing and being fed, not just the milk of the Word, but the meat of the Word. We have to grow in this, this area. And, you know, that takes time, takes study. And even with what we're dealing with here uh, in this section of Colossians, where we're looking at uh, putting off the old and putting on the new in our family relationships, we have to grow in that. We don't just know how to do it. And so... You know, but we have the Holy Spirit who is to guide us into all truth. Now, again, this statement that I just read is so important in the section of the letter we're in. Because so often we, you know, we jump over into this passage and if we don't realize this, what do we do? We start trying to make the old man live this way. We read about wives be submissive to your husband. And so the old man's going to try. And it's going to fail. Because even if it does so externally, it will not do it in the heart. It won't. Today we're going to be looking at husbands need to love their wives. And, you know, it's so easy to go to that. And... And say, okay, I'm going to go really try hard to love my wife. Rather than realizing the only way I can do so is by living my life in union with Christ. And my prayer needs to be, Lord, I want you know, the life of Christ to flow through me towards my wife. If we don't keep these two separated in our thinking and realize what God is talking about as He speaks of family relationship, we're going to go about it all wrong. Because we're going to try to do it through the energy of the flesh. And I will assure you, you will fail. Now, You know, really, marital relationships become one of the biggest tools in God's hands in teaching us, really, our need for the new life in Christ. It is an incredible tool. You know, for a while, uh, you know, we've used different books when we did premarital counseling. For a little while, we used a book called Sacred Marriage. And he used the premise that God's greatest desire in marriage isn't to make us happy, but to make us holy. His 
greatest desire isn't to make us happy, but make us holy. Now, he's not against us being happy. (laughs) But he's using this relationship to develop our, our, our dependence on him. He said, you know, historically there's been this idea, especially back in the Catholic Church and things, that, you know, if you really wanted to live a holy life, you stayed single. He said, it's pretty easy for a single person to deceive themselves into thinking that they are a lot more holy than they really are. In fact, he said... Probably the hardest thing about the first year of marriage isn't what you learn about your spouse that you didn't know. It's what you learn about yourself that you didn't know. And I don't think that stops with the first year of marriage. In fact, I think a lot of our struggles come from the fact that we really don't like the fact that God is using our spouse to reveal things to ourselves that we really don't want to see. And we don't want to face, and we don't want to acknowledge, and we don't want to deal with. If it weren't for our spouse, we could, we could ignore these things. But they drag it out into the open. And about the time you've learned so much of what you can learn from your spouse, God brings children along. And they reveal even more things about yourself that you never knew. More things about yourself that you didn't really want to see. About the time you start being a little bit patient with your spouse, you bring children along and you find out, I'm still not patient. (laughs) You know, and it reveals a lot of things. Now, again, you know, our spouse and our children are some of the biggest tools used in God's working in our life. But we've got to be cautious that we don't misinterpret what I'm saying here. Because a lot of times when people hear that, it's kind of like, okay, God is expecting me to fix my spouse. No. Your spouse is God's workmanship, and you are. He will use you in each other's lives, but if you start thinking it's up to you to fix them, you'll probably break more than you fix. It's not my responsibility to fix Jonelle. It's my responsibility... To grow in my relationship with Christ and let Him work in Jonelle's life. And use her relationship with me in that process. So, you know, today, last week we, we spent our time looking at... Paul's charge to wives to willingly choose to rank under their husband and to do this as an act of service really to the Lord and and an act of service to the husband in a sense as unto the Lord. We talked about the fact that you know men and women are different 
if you haven't realized that. That men tend to, their deepest need is more in the area of respect than it is in the area of love. And with women, it's more in the area of love. We both need love and respect. But what's dominant is different. And we need to realize that. Because what God is doing is calling upon each spouse to minister to the deepest need of the other. He's also calling upon us to meet a need that doesn't come naturally to us. Something that really requires us to depend upon the Holy Spirit. Submission doesn't come naturally. I really don't believe it comes naturally. I said last week, people, I've heard people say, well, if the husband's truly loving, the wife won't have any trouble submitting. If that were true, we wouldn't have any struggle with Christ. He's absolutely loving, and we still struggle with submitting to him. It runs contrary to our nature. And... Uh, you know, in the, in the book, um, Love and Respect, you know, the author points out that women tend to be great at loving is the respect that's challenging to them. And men struggle more in the area of love. The type of love that's being called for here. So, we want to pick up with where we left off last week. And, and let me just say also, by way of reminder, you know, it said submission because it's fitting in the Lord. And it's fitting because it's part of His design. It's also fitting because the wife is intended to picture the church. And the church is to live in, in submission to Christ. And so, it's a fitting picture. Plus, I said, submission has nothing to do with being of less value or importance. Christ submitted to the Father, and yet they are seen to be co-equal. There is submission in the Godhead. And so, as we look for that which is going to picture that relationship... That's where the wife is called. Now, we pick up this week. He doesn't just address the wives. We touched on this a little bit and then ran out of time. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Now, as I pointed out last week, and I'll remind you of this because this is incredibly important. Paul does not say, husbands, make sure your wife submits. We are incredibly bad at reading what God said to the other person and focusing on that. Wives want to focus on what God said to the husband. Husbands want to focus on what God said to the wife. The parents want to focus on what God said to the children. Kind of ignore what they said to the parents. It's not my responsibility to be concerned with whether or not Jonelle is submissive towards me. That's between her and the Lord. That's their issue. 
My responsibility is to love her no matter what. With an agape love. Now, as I pointed out last week, you know, oftentimes men, when they're Christian men, are asked when what their uh, number one responsibility is. It's, they'll say it's to be the leader, the head of the home, and certainly there's that is part of Scripture. But as I said last week. It's really, in a sense, up to the wife to make him the leader by choosing to submit. Because I used the illustration last week. I said, <laughs> had a leader, had a regional director in, in, uh, in, when we were in Europe who used to say, if you think you're a leader and you look back and no one's following, you're just out for a walk. <laughs> to be a leader, you've got to have a follower. And so, you know, if a wife wants her husband to really be the leader, she's got to be willing to to choose to follow. Even when his leadership isn't exactly the way she would do it. So, you know, that's not the number one command given to husbands. Yes, they're to be willing to be out front. And we have to understand leadership. It's about servanthood. It's about leading the way, not about controlling everything. It's not about dominating everything. That's the world's view of leadership. That is not a biblical view of leadership. Leadership is to be willing to serve. And I don't know what wife is opposed to her husband being willing to serve her. To take the lead in servanthood. Rick, can I just say, it's a beautiful thing. I hope y'all find me comment. We taught this together in school. And just, not the Bible part. Rick taught that. Um, but it, isn't it a beautiful thing? If you really stop and think of this, how God did it, because it works as so well. Need to uh, that Rick emphasizes is this whole thing of independence of God. But you think as a wife chooses to rank under her husband, and she does that, and he's serving her and loving her, that makes her feel more like submitting to him in many ways. Though we struggle, I struggle. We don't have it all figured out, believe me. But we're doing good. But anyway, I'm just saying. And then as as, and this is in the marriage of, that God has given. There are people that are being abused. There are people who are being tormented. And that's not what we're talking about. But walking in the Spirit and doing it God's way, it, it works. And it's not burdensome. Mm. But it is, man. Mm-hmm. It's a humdinger if one of you is not on the, on the track. Yeah. And God, God's ways work if we're both walking in the Spirit as we walk in it. But even the thing of this, y'all, as, as we do this, and there bonds, there becomes more of a bond between us and the <clears throat> If you 
even helps in the thing of being able to understand when the other person's struggling because you have something solid. So it's worth the work. <laughs> and we've said so many times in marriage and family, marriage is hard work. Fulfilling, if it's done, you know, as God has led us to, but it is hard and hard work. Mm. People don't like to hear that, but, but anyway, I'm just saying this thing works if you really think through what God was saying in this. And as two, two people walk more and more in union with Him in this, and you're going to have your struggles, absolutely, but back to the solidness of what God says it is incredible. Now, you know. As I pointed out last week, the word for love here, and the love, the word that's always used when husbands are commanded is agape. Which is not so much an emotion as it is a value-driven action. It's valuing them and seeking what is best for them. Paul uses that word here. He uses it in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 25 and 28. In 1 Peter 3, 7, it doesn't use the word agape, but it basically describes it. It says, live with them in an understanding way and honor them. And the word honor has to do with placing a value on them. Um, in uh, 1 Peter, you know, he talks about, uh, you know, treating your wife as a weaker vessel, and I always used to enjoy, you know, I had a homework assignment and asked the guys, you know, about this one. And, you know, it was, well, they're, they're weaker physically or they're weaker emotionally. And, and I said, if you think they're all weaker physically, watch the Summer Olympics sometime. There are some Russian gals on there you wouldn't want to meet in the dark alley. Uh, <laughs> they aren't weaker physically. <laughs> Are weaker, <laughs> are, are weaker emotionally. I said, I've seen marriages where the wife was stronger emotionally than the husband. So what is Peter saying? I said, I think what Peter is saying, that in the marriage relationship, the husband needs to deal with his wife and view her in a way that he sees her as something he can break. A vessel of great value to him. I used to say in class, I said, any, if, you know, any of you married women, if you were to speak up and be totally honest, you would acknowledge that the one person in this world who can break you quicker than anybody else, it'll be your husband. For the wife in a marital relationship, she is vulnerable. And husbands, you know, as they seek to love their wife, they need to grasp that. You know, you can't talk to your wife like your best buddy. If, you're if we're talking about your best buddy being another man. The way men speak to each other is one way. <laughs> You speak to your wife the same way, and it will not go over quite the same. 
and vice versa. Women can't uh, talk with men at times the way they talk with their, their women friends. In the, the book Love and Respect, the author says, you know, people say that communication is the key to a great relationship. He said that would probably work if we spoke the same language. But women speak a female language and men speak a male language. And if we don't learn to interpret each other's languages and learn to, to minister to each other in that way, it, you know, we run into problems. He uses kind of a, uh, a humorous example. He says, you know, if a woman says, I have nothing to wear, she means I have nothing new. If a guy says, I have nothing to wear, he means I have nothing clean. <laughs> Same words, <laughs> different meaning. <laughs> but he said, when you get into the relationship, we, 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 we speak a different language. The book Love and Respect, or, or really uh, the sequel to it, uh, The Language of Love and Respect, is worth a read. Uh, uh, language of love and respect kind of condenses what he does in his first book, which is a little bit repetitious, but sometimes the repetition has value. Well, that's been renamed the, the language of love and respect. And in it, he summarizes the first book, but he goes more into the spiritual element uh, in the language of love and respect. But it does a pretty good job of showing the difference in which we relate to each other and where the struggle comes uh, in, in our relationship. But, you know, it's only as I put off the old man and put on the new that I can truly show an agape love to Jonelle. It's not going to flow naturally from me. And if I try to do it in the energy of the flesh, if I say, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, you know, and I grip my teeth and I'm going to do it, the flesh will ultimately betray itself. And that's why Paul says, and don't become embittered. See, agape, true agape love is non-reciprocal. It does not look for a response. It consistently does what is best for that other person, even if they do not respond positively to us. When the flesh tries to crank it out, after a while, if it does not get a response, it gets bitter. And that's where it betrays itself. It shows us that I'm not really doing that as an outflow of my life with Christ. I'm doing it because I want to get something from my wife. I want to get a, a response that I like. The wife's respect of her husband is to be non-reciprocal. The husband's love of his wife is to be non-reciprocal. 
We don't do it to get the response we want from the other party. We do it as unto the Lord. As an act of service to Him. Now oftentimes, if we do it as unto Him, it does bring a response. But not always, because God deals with us as His children with an agape love, day in, day out. And it doesn't always get a response. There are Christians who spend their entire life here on earth living for themselves even though God is dealing with them in love and grace over and over and over again. But God keeps on loving us with an agape love. Now, as I pointed out last week, doesn't tell us to uh, Eros, our wife, have romantic feelings for her. It's nice if we do. It doesn't say to have a friendship love for her, which is nice if, it, if we do. It says to have an agape love. And agape is what will help maintain a romantic love. It's what will help maintain a friendship love. And at times it is what will build them back when they've been lost. As we truly deal with our wives in agape love. Now just like the wife's submissive attitude is a a fitting response given her new life is in union with Christ. So is the husband's agape love towards his wife. Because it's consistent with the image of God who is characterized. One of his, his attributes is agape love. And the husband-wife relationship is intended to illustrate Christ's relationship to his church. Christ demonstrated agape love when he went to the cross. And he continues to demonstrate agape love as he represents us before the throne of God. And he will continue to deal with us in agape love throughout eternity. And so, you know, as a husband, my desire and my prayer should be, Lord, I want to daily, moment by moment, put off the old man, put on the new, and let the agape love of Christ flow through me towards my wife so that others can see what Christ is like. What he, as our bridegroom, is like. I can't do that in the flesh. And unfortunately, in our 49 years of marriage, there have been far too many times that I have stepped over into the flesh and I have ceased from dealing with Jonelle in a loving way. But hopefully that brings me back to Christ. I think we shared the other week we had a 
close friends in Ireland whose marriage pretty much almost fell apart. And they said the one thing that saved their marriage was really understanding the difference between the old man and the new and realizing that their conflicts were in this area, in the old man. And that it was when they stepped over into the flesh, the old Adamic nature, that their struggles came. And to be able to acknowledge that and pick up and step back over into their life with Christ and move forward. And to be able to say to the other one, look, I'm sorry, I stepped over into the flesh, it stinks. And I'm sorry that I stepped over there. But that's not who I am in Christ. And to pick up and walk on. Now after addressing husbands and wives, Paul addresses the children. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Here, Paul is actually addressing Christian children. Now certainly, and we'll get to these probably not this week, but next, there are instructions given to parents concerning raising their children. But this verse is really directed to the children. And I believe it's significant to note here that Paul seems to actually believe and is convinced that children can actually put off the old Adamic nature and put on the new. That they can actually learn to live like new creations in Christ. You know, during his public ministry, Christ on several occasions spoke out regarding the significance of children. And warned against, you know... Uh, causing them to stumble or hindering them from coming to Him. And I think all this demonstrates that children can actually comprehend far more in regards to the Christian life than we give them credit for. And unfortunately, a whole lot of our teaching of children has to do with trying to change the old Adamic life. We're going to try to fix that old man. Rather than really devoting our teaching towards showing them that they actually have a new life in Christ. Can live on the basis of it. You know, I was fortunate. I grew up in this church. And I mean, I don't, you know, I know Miss Betty's probably teaching the children very well now. And I don't know what all else gets taught. I, I just don't. We don't have young kids anymore. But I had teachers here growing up that actually believed we could learn. Learn Christian principles. Learn the Christian life. When I went to Bible college... I told one of my professors one day, I've got it so easy here because I've been taught most of this stuff all my life. I grew up being taught these things. 
And all I'm doing is getting them refreshed in my thinking. When my students at times were struggling with <laughs> studying dispensations, I told, told them, and this was honest, I said by the time I was 10 years old, I could reproduce a dispensational chart. I remember Winnie Mac Knight in vacation Bible school one uh, summer having a dispensational chart across the full length of the church. And that was the focus of vacation Bible school. I was taught how to look at the different sections of the Bible and know whom, whom God was speaking to and under what program He was dealing with them. And, you know, what was law and what was grace. Children can learn those things. Because they don't have to unlearn a lot of the stuff we have. A lot of, you know, a lot grow up with everything being about fixing the old man and it becomes a very law-based way of thinking. And so they think in a very law-based way. And trying to get law-based thinking out of your mind is hard. And so, I think, you know, Paul is acknowledging, look, we're in that section where he's talking about putting off the old, putting on the new. Children do this. And as they do so, recognize that God's desire is that it manifests itself in obedience. Again, this is fitting for one who shares the life of Christ. Philippians 2.8, Paul states that Christ humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Christ, over and over again throughout his earthly ministry, showed himself to be an obedient son. Obedient to the will of the Father. And this is what God desires of believing children. That they be obedient to their parent, not out of fear of what's going to happen if they don't. But as a, a, as a heart unto God. Now this kind of obedience does call for faith. Faith in God's divine enablement. Confidence in God's ability to work through parents who aren't perfect. And it requires a dependence on the Holy Spirit to enable that which the flesh, the old Adamic nature, is always going to rebel against. And Paul says that this manifestation of the new man in the child is well pleasing to God. So the wife is intended show, to show forth in a, in a sense picture the church's relationship to Christ. The husband is intended to picture uh, Christ's uh, dealings with the church. The children are to picture 
you know, uh, our, uh, uh, and, and, and ours and even Christ's uh, relationship to the Father. And then he says, as fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. Word translated fathers here, I know in one passage uh, is translated parents. It speaks here of fathers, but I think this can go across to parents. And it's here that God, or uh, Paul, through, uh, God through Paul, takes on the issue of parenting and how we are to deal with our children. Now, I'll just barely introduce this and then we'll be out of time and we'll pick up next week. But, you know, here I'm reading from, I think, the New American Standard. It says, fathers do not exasperate your children. Um, that they might uh, not lose heart. Um, I'm told some of the earliest manuscripts read very similar to Ephesians. Where in Ephesians it says, do not provoke your children to anger. Uh, Some of the most ancient uh, manuscripts had, uh, you know, a similar uh, translation. But even the um, way it's, uh, written in this passage involves uh, a Greek word that comes from uh, another Greek word that means to stir up to anger. And so there's this exhortation on the uh, part of parents and fathers in particular not to provoke children to anger. <laughs> Now, we can't get into that a lot this week. You'll have to come back next week because you think, how on earth can I deal with my children without ever making them upset? You can't. And that's not what he's talking about here. We're going to uh, get into the fact that it has to do with developing an, you know, an under-the-surface seething type of anger. And we'll talk some about uh, different things that perhaps lead to that and that we as parents need to be aware of. But I will say, you know, and we talked about this in our family relationships uh, course. You know, we always want lists. That's because we're very law-based, way of, uh, law-based thinkers. Give me a list of things to do. You know, wives, give me a long list of things to do. God tells you one thing. Respect your husband or choose to rank under him. You can't do that. And you think if you had 12 more things, you could do them. Husbands, love your wife. You know, give me a a long list of things to do for my wife and I'll do it. And you can't, I can't do the one. Why would having a whole lot more? With parenting, we want this long list of things to do and not to do. And God doesn't give them to us in the New Testament. And so what do we do? We go to the Old Testament. We go back to the Mosaic Law. And try to get our instructions from the law. What God calls for us to do, and we'll talk about this next week is to follow his example.
He is our Father. Look at how He works. Watch how He works in our lives. That is how we are to, to minister to our children. We are to father like the Father. Um, I'll read something from this next week. It's, it's a good little book. Families Where Grace is in Place by Jeff Van Vonderen. And he does a good job of dealing with the contrast between grace-based families and shame-based families. And generally, law-based families are also shame-based. Uh, and um, he does a really good job of dealing with that. It's a worthwhile read, uh, especially for parents, because he does a really good job at looking at the kinds of things that do build this under-the-surface bitterness in our children that we have to uh, be aware of and look to the Lord to guide. Again, my new nature doesn't just know everything. I don't need a big list of things, but I do need to understand my child. I need to understand my wife. You women need to understand your husband. And, and the Lord can use different uh, tools to bring us into that kind of understanding. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you now for the family. And Lord, just what an incredible tool it is in your hands. You use it to reveal so many things to us about ourselves. And Lord, we have to admit, a lot of what it reveals, we really don't want to see. <laughs> but Lord, we need to see it. And we need to push, have it push us to Christ. Lord, may we come to see that we do have a new life in Christ that stands in stark contrast to what we are apart from him. Now, Lord, we look forward to uh, our time uh, in the main service as we sing praises to you, as we look into your word. And then, Lord, we look forward to the fellowship meal. Uh, may our time together as the body of Christ be honoring and glorifying to you. First, in the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Knowing everything, yeah. you know.